Welcome to Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful and technical world of institutional investment in digital assets. I'm your host, Fadia Boalfa, Copper's Head of Research, and our guests today are founder of Stylus Capital, Barak Yenigun, and his research advisor, Robert Carver. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Fadi. Thanks yeah, for having thanks us. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Barak, Rob, can you guys just introduce yourselves and your backgrounds and what you're doing right now within the space? You go first, Barak. All right. I'm Barak Yenigun. Uh, I'm the founder and CIO of Stylus Capital. Uh, Stylus Capital runs a systematic hedge fund in the crypto space. Our predominant strategy is momentum. And prior to launching Stylus Capital, I worked in the traditional finance industry, first in JP Morgan and then Oliver Wyman. Hi, I'm Robert Carver or Rob, if you prefer. But if you call me Bob, I will find you and hunt you down and kill you. I'm 49 years old. I'm a Taurus. I'm a independent, uh, systematic futures trader and, and writer and consultant. So I'm actually the research advisor to, to Borak's hedge fund since the beginning of the year. And um, my financial background, I started off in investment banking as a, an exotic rates trader. And I then moved into systematic futures uh, hedge fund trading. I was head of fixed income at AHL running a $5 billion portfolio and retired from that about ooh, just under 10 years ago now. And uh, <laughs> to put it right up front, I don't consider myself an expert in crypto. Uh, in fact, I, I don't actually trade crypto at all. I, I trade crypto futures on the CME, but that's it. Um, uh, but uh, I do consider myself an expert in trading. And I guess Burak agrees with me because he's paying me to, to, to help him with that. Uh, and an expert in particular in trading systems. So, so there we go. Thank you. Thank you guys for the intro. That's a good point. You're not a crypto trader, but you are helping Barack trade crypto. So can you tell me a little bit of the strategies that you're employing from the traditional world into the crypto world? Yeah, so I guess uh, it's useful to think about like what is actually out there in traditional finance. So there are three major strategy styles in traditional finance, momentum, carry and value. So one thing to think about is, well, which one of those is actually applicable to crypto? So, I mean, right off the bat, value seems less applicable, right? Because it's, you know, there is not necessarily a intrinsic value to crypto. So it's very hard to kind of estimate what that should be and then have a value investment strategy built around that. Uh, carry is perhaps more applicable, but that also has, you know, certain kinds of problems in a crypto context. And then there's there's the momentum. So, you know, one could argue that perhaps crypto is the ultimate momentum asset because there is no way to value it properly. So that's what we ported over from traditional finance to crypto. And, uh, you know, we used Rob's framework on momentum trading while doing so. Robert, do you have anything to add to that? I certainly do. I actually disagree with Barak, which is one of the reasons why we, we enjoy working together so much because... You know, what's the point of uh, hiring a consultant is just going to going to nod and say, yeah, you're right, chief, every time. Um, so I, I don't believe there's anything special about crypto um, in particular, but I do believe momentum is quite a good trading strategy generally for a number of different reasons. So one of the things about it is it does seem to work well across a variety of different asset classes. OK, so that makes me kind of more confident from a sort of statistical robustness perspective, um, because crypto has not been around that long, really. Right. So it's been around. Well, an absolute maximum of 15 years and actually traded actively for, for much less than that. So so you, you can't really look at the kind of track record of crypto prices and draw any firm conclusions, in my opinion, about what necessarily is going to work in crypto in particular. 
But what you can do is take a trading strategy like Momentum that works well in futures, in stocks, in equities, in FX, and all kinds of asset classes, and apply that to crypto. The other thing that's that's nice about Momentum is is the way that it sort of does its risk management. So Momentum strategies automatically get you out of losing positions. Okay, so they automatically close positions that where you're making a loss. And in something like crypto that obviously can can move very violently in, in one direction or another and where trends can reverse very sharply, I think that's a really useful um, thing to have as a kind of safety net. Um, so what, one of the things that the reasons I like working with Burak is he thinks a lot very carefully about the, the kind of specific risks in crypto and, and does a lot of work in understanding you know, how to protect himself from that. Um, and that makes trend following a very natural fit um, to, to trading crypto systematically. Thanks for that, Rob. So I've got a bit of a question because both of you have said that you don't find any intrinsic value in crypto. There was a research paper a couple of years ago, I think from Yale, that was published about potentially looking at network versus production costs and value and trying to find value there. I mean, let's let's just look at Bitcoin and Ethereum just for a second, because Rob, you've, you've mentioned you, you, you trade that, you, at least you can trade that on CME. Do you not find that the production cost and the, the sort of the scarcity that was mentioned before on Bitcoin and potentially the shift for Ethereum on proof of stake and now that they've actually completed Shanghai upgrade, which could release a lot of Ethereum into the, into the pools, do you think there's anything that people should be watching out for? I mean, before Burak answers, I'll just say I didn't understand literally a thing that you just said. Because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just to be very clear about the way, you know, I'm, I trade purely on a, a use looking at a price. And the, the price could be anything, right? It could be the price of crude oil, could be the price of S&P 500, could be the price of wheat, corn, etc. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't use fundamentals at all when I'm trading. Um, you can implement simple value strategies actually across asset classes by using something really simple like saying, okay, um, you know, what's the kind of price of this thing roughly as an average over the last five years? And for Bitcoin, that might be, I don't know, ten, twelve thousand dollars something like that. And then you basically make a bet that the price will just revert to that value. Um, and the advantage of that is it's a simple strategy that works well across different asset classes and you don't need to have any other data in there or any understanding of what the asset actually is. Um, the downside with those kinds of strategies is um, because they're, they're trading obviously very slowly because you've got a very long look back, there's, there's a very weak kind of evidence that they, they actually work in, in the back test. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of answering your question and talking about things that literally went completely over my head, I will now hand over to, to the, the expert on the podcast as far as crypto goes. Yeah. So actually, Fadi, that is something that I have. I mean, before we even did our first trade in crypto, um, that happens to be something that I thought very deeply about, and I do have strong views about it. Uh, that does not necessarily mean they're true, but I mean, you know, I'm convinced they are, but you know, I guess time will tell. So I think that, well, first of all, I reject the entire premise of the Yale st study, which I haven't actually, re actually read, but the premise that you're mentioning, which is that you can actually kind of derive a connection between the production costs and the price of Bitcoin. Um, I reject that premise and let me break down why. So in a commodity, you know, uh, you know, in literally all, any commodity except crypto, you can kind of think of a mechanism through which um, the supply actually can adjust to price. So, you know, if you imagine gold price going up by 10, 10x, you know, we don't know what exactly will happen to supply, but it's probably going to increase and it certainly is not going to remain constant, right? But that's not the case with Bitcoin. So... 
in case of Bitcoin, it doesn't matter if the Bitcoin is $1 or $1 billion or $1 million per Bitcoin. Uh, there is only a certain amount produced every 10 minutes. So, you know, and, and that's something that's broadly advertised, right? Like in Bitcoin, like that's advertised as a attractive thing. You know, whatever happens, there will only be 21 million. And there is this very well-defined schedule that, you know, Bitcoins are generated with. So that, in a sense, that that starts to look a lot less like a commodity and a lot more like a collectible, right? So, you know, you can think of it like a Da Vinci painting. You know, it doesn't matter how much money that you spend. You know, there can only be so many Da Vinci paintings. Um, so I, I think that that's like a that's like a better analogy for crypto. So it's almost like you've put a Da Vinci painting in an ETF, and there can only be twenty-one million shares. Well, I guess technically infinite shares because it's infinitely divisible, but you know, let's call it 21 million shares. Um, and then, yeah, so, uh, so, and then you have this ETF and then people keep, you know, latching on to various narratives, true or false, I think often false narratives. And then that causes these like boom bust cycles, right? So, uh, but yeah, I mean, long story short, I think Bitcoin is as possible to value as a painting, which I guess is pretty difficult to value in itself. Uh, there is no intrinsic value to it. Perhaps you can try to value it using complements or like other substitutes, etc. But you know, there is no intrinsic value to these things. So I don't think it's possible to calculate an intrinsic value based on production costs. Now Ethereum is obviously a bit different, but you know, that, that can be a longer discussion. But yeah, so speaking of Bitcoin, that's why I reject the premise. I, I agree with you on the production cost. I mean, I think this was five years ago, six years ago, this was JP Morgan's kind of uh, Hail Mary on how to price Bitcoin was the cost of production, which, which I've also never found to be reasonable. But having said that, and discussing the 21 million, before we jumped on this podcast, we spoke a little bit and we discussed about on-chain metrics and data. And one of the things that I find fascinating in crypto is the ability to actually track, unlike gold that you mentioned before, is the ability to track the actual supply of Bitcoin that's available on exchanges. Now, today it's around 2 million that are left on spot markets. Are you saying that when that goes to 1 million, when that goes to 500,000, that when that goes to 100,000, sat by sat, it is not going to have a fundamental difference on the price. Well, I think it might. Um, I think it's possible to imagine a link between those two metrics. I'm just not sure how one would go about, and perhaps this is where Rob can, can, can provide some very valuable input. But the reason, the fundamental reason or the fundamental problem with alternative data appears to be it is very hard to reach to uh, statistically significant conclusions from that because they don't have a huge and long history. So you can come up with any kind of narrative and perfectly sensible sounding idea about how you know a certain metric, an on-chain metric, can drive price or can help predict the price. Uh, apart from the extremely you know high sharp strategies or high value signals where you're minting money day in, day out. Apart from stuff like that, I think that it's very hard to come up with a vague signal that maybe predicts something in the future because like you need some, you need a lot of data to be able to do that. And I'm not convinced that we have 
a rich enough history in crypto to be able to come to those kinds of conclusions, apart from perhaps very short term stuff. Yeah, if I can, yeah, just just kind of agree with you there, Barack. So um, if I just think about data generally in finance, um, ideally, you want more kind of data points, right? More degrees of freedom. There's different ways of getting those. So you can get history. So you can get ideally if you're if you're trading at a sort of longish horizon, so the holding period of weeks to months, you really want decades of history to get sort of statistical significance. And as I've already said, we've got that in, in futures, but we haven't got that in crypto. Um, alternatively, um, you know, if you're if you are a high frequency trader, if you're trading faster, then you can get away with less data. Um, but obviously, you know, the I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of, of high frequency trading um, in futures and. Um, to talk about high frequency trading in crypto is going well beyond my, is going kind of out of my comfort zone, both in both directions, both in terms of the holding period and asset class. So I'm not even going to go there. Um, but the other thing you can do is, yeah, you can get a, a broader set of data, you can get a wider set of data. Um, so if you think about trading equities, you know, in, in equities, we can use things like book price data, we can use dividend yields, we can use all of these different accounting ratios and factors and information to come to a view about, about what an equity price is likely to do. And that allows you to do quite, you know, quite a lot of analysis because you've got an awful lot of data points, even though they're probably lower frequency than the price. You get a new price every every microsecond. You only get a new kind of earnings number for a company normally every quarter, right? So it's not it's not as high frequency, but it's a very rich, wide data set. Um, but just so just very quickly then, so in terms of alternative data in crypto, so what the way I kind of see it is. You, you have potentially got a very wide set of data, right? You've got a lot of different numbers you can use, all these on-chain metrics and so on and so forth, things I don't really understand, but but I'll take, take your um, opinion they exist. But again, you've got a very short history of them. So in many cases, the history of those is even shorter than the history of the actual price itself. And, um, you know, that that means that the other thing is that the kind of number of instruments in crypto you can actually trade that are, that are kind of liquid enough isn't that big. Um, so although it looks like you've got a lot of data it's a wide number of data points that the history is really short and the number of things you can trade is really small whereas in equities you've got you know hundreds of equities decades of data lots of data points it's a much richer data set um you know maybe in 50 years time um what we know when i'm probably dead and gone um crypto will have that data and it will be realistic to do this kind of analysis there but at the moment just putting my statistician's hat on i don't think it's possible so i've got a, a different question then you're, you are looking at different data points within companies and equities. And so my question is, when you're looking at something like Bitcoin, is the fact that it's become a globally recognized brand with exchanges across the world and the unique properties of the, the instant transfer transfers, do you not factor in sort of that marketing potential for it just as a brand just as an as a as an iconic investment that someone might want to own one bitcoin is that potentially a factor to consider or are we do we go back to the point that we just don't have enough information i mean i i don't know how you'd even quantify that you you know so to trade systematically you need to deal with things that are quantifiable and um, yeah. prices are quantifiable um these other metrics are probably quantifiable but kind of vague opinions about you know, so things like talking about some kind of value, basic kind of valuation model, with a lot of opinions and assumptions in there, and similarly, you know, subjective opinions about whether Bitcoin's going to take over the world as a means of payment, blah blah blah. Um, you know, it's very hard to quantify those and put them into a quantifiable, backtestable system. In fact, it's impossible by construction. Um, Burak, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, actually, Fadi, I think 
Um, what you mentioned, uh, I mean, I totally agree with Rob in terms of the unquantifiable nature of that. But I think that question that you're asking is also touching uh, an adjacent topic that I find kind of interesting and something, again, that we, me and Rob disagree on. So Rob is, as you might have noticed, is a crypto skeptic. Uh, and I would call myself a crypto agnostic with a mild bullish bias. Uh, and the and my bullish bias on Bitcoin comes from something, let's say, adjacent to what you've laid out. So what would somebody considering investing in crypto think about? Like, let's imagine that we're, I don't know, running an endowment or a pension fund or something like that. And, you know, we're fiduciaries and not necessarily investing our own money. So I guess we would want to see some evidence of a positive expected returns. Uh, does this thing have positive expected returns? And I guess if it doesn't have positive expected returns, then we would want to see something like a crisis hedge kind of positive skew properties that perhaps helped you if the next 2008 hits or something like that. Now, I think this year, if anything, has proven that that B is very on very shaky ground. Uh, it doesn't look like there is any kind of crisis hedge properties to Bitcoin. But I actually do believe that crypto might have positive expected returns, unlike Rob, which I guess he can he can dig deeper into. And the reason why I think crypto might be actually positive expect return is for two reasons. One, exactly what you described. So I do think that, well, it's, it's, a, it's basically an art or collectible-like thing that happens to be liquid. And if, you know, the global wealth rises and if the amount of, you know, financial super wealth that chases these coins increase, then you can imagine its value going higher. So that's one thing. I mean... Just because we invented some scarce thing doesn't mean that people are going to want it, right? Like there has to be some other interesting properties to it. So I think that's where this like marketing slash brand slash being the first crypto asset with the largest network effect, which might revert, by the way, eventually because of these crypto security considerations around how much mining there is. But, you know, that's a separate discussion. Uh, so I think there is some positive EV there, positive expected returns rather. Um, and then the other thing is that the, I tend to think of crypto assets as, I think that they have equity-like characteristics as well. So if you imagine these coins being useful for something, you know, we're going to run 1000 experiments and maybe a couple of them are going to actually work out. But if it does, if some of those experiments do work out, then you can imagine all of that innovation around them potentially turning into a desire to um, hold them um, for various reasons. If nothing else, you, you just like hold Ethereum in your wallet as an afterthought. And for, because of that, the demand for them goes up. And, you know, that can actually have a positive impact on price. So I am more uh, optimistic than Rob that crypto is a positive expected return asset class. Uh, but obviously, you know, if you're trading it with a momentum style, you absolutely do not care. All you care is whether or not they trend. Well, look, before we jump into a little bit more on the on the momentum and the investment strategies, I, I do want to go back to a point that you just made, Barack, on the potential properties of Bitcoin being a crisis coin, which you said it's not, yeah. given, given the fact of this year. Yeah. Okay. Can you kind of then explain what's going on this year with Bitcoin nearly doubling in price in the face of banking crisis in the US that had it not been for the Federal Reserve injecting or at least supporting potential bank failures, it's going up 
and we're in a crisis. During 2020, the price of Bitcoin was going up just as the Federal Reserve and every central bank was printing historic amounts of money. That's also a, a, a different kind of crisis, but it's a crisis nonetheless. So how yeah. is so based on those just these two events, the 2020 printing of money and the 2023 banking crisis, how is it not a how is it not a crisis coin? Yeah, great question. And I think I have a very uh, I think you will find my answer satisfying funny, but let's see, let's I've, see if I've you got will. an answer too, but I want to hear yours first. <laughs> I'm, yeah, all right. I'm, I'm on pins and needles here, guys. <laughs> all right. So the answer about, so this year, right? You know, how come is Bitcoin up 82%? So I just pulled up uh, Google Finance and to get the exact numbers. So the Bitcoin is up 82% as we speak year to date. And ARK, Innovation Int ETF, is up 23%. So basically, I think this year has seen a rise in all risk assets, effectively. And last year, the crypto, I think the index was down something like 70%. The, the crypto index was down 70%. I cannot exactly remember Bitcoin. And obviously, you know, the stocks were down as well. So I think that tells you now that does not automatically tell you that it's not a crisis hedge. But if it's a crisis hedge, it does not appear in the data yet. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And I think there's every reason to expect that crypto is actually a risk asset more than anything else. Having said that, I do have a major, major asterisk. I think crypto industry, or let's call it the people who are, you know, subscribing to the major narratives in crypto are missing a very important point. They're focused on the wrong derivative, let's call it, uh, around inflation. So I think, I don't think that crypto is an inflation hedge. Having said that, Let's imagine another like Great Depression like scenario or like a Great Recession without where you know Fed actually stepped in and saved the banks. In a scenario like that, crypto does provide a truly unplugged alternative to traditional counterparties, and that can be very valuable. I mean, we certainly experienced this firsthand in our you know day-to-day -day operations of our hedge fund. Basically, it is possible to move money from some place like Silvergate Bank to you know, Coinbase through Silvergate Exchange Network, and then you can move money out to a custodian like Copper, for example, which actually happens to be our custodian. So that is a very valuable thing. But I would like to point out that that is not an inflation hedge. That is a counterparty risk hedge. That is a traditional um, financial counterparty exposure mitigation or diversification. And those two things are very separate. So, and, and you know, I was recently discussing this with a friend and basically I was telling him, you know, 99% of the time we will find ourselves running away from crypto to fiat infrastructure because if there is like another crisis in crypto or like a effectively a credit crisis equivalent of crypto. So you will find people running away from crypto to fiat as we did last year. But every once in a while, every once a few decades or once a few centuries, we can find ourselves running from fiat infrastructure, namely banks, to crypto to hedge against uh, imperfectly, by the way, because the price risk is still there. I mean, you can hold Bitcoins in your wallet, but if their price drops by 99%, it's not exactly a very useful thing. But it still is a less than one correlation in terms of um, having default risks across your counterparties. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's a va valuable thing. Uh, before I go further, I guess I'll 
I'll let Rob uh, take the stage. Yeah, just a general point about, and so this isn't specific to crypto, but um, now I've been in finance a long time and um, every now and then I see people say, well, you know, of course, asset X is a is a crisis asset or asset Y is, a, is an inflation hedge. And um, well, there's, there's two things. Firstly, crises don't happen that often, fortunately, by definition, or I guess they wouldn't be crisis. They'd just be what, what's happening day to day. Um, and that means kind of putting my statistician's hat on again. You rarely have enough data points to actually say for sure, yes, this asset is definitely a crisis asset or this asset is definitely, you know, something that does well in periods of heightened inflation. And um, even if you, you, you know, even if you kind of talk about the inflation argument, for example, um, and you say, well, I'm going to use data to decide when assets do well in periods of high inflation. Well, the problem is that, you know, there hasn't really been high inflation in the in globally in developed countries since, well, roughly the time when I was born, 40, 45 years. And you go back to the 1970s, really. It, I, I'm a bit reluctant about using data from the 1970s to judge whether a particular asset should, should do well or badly in times of inflation. And of course, that won't help us with crypto because, you know, that's, that wasn't around in the 1970s anyway. So the other, the other point I'd make then is, is that each crisis is different. If, if every crisis was like 2008, then, then there'd be a particular playbook you could follow. You could say, oh, yeah, well, credit, credit's going to lead the crisis and, and, and this assets will do well and these assets will do badly. But actually, every, every crisis is, is different. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. When March 2020 happened and, and you know, everything was kind of obviously going really badly, one of the first things I did was go to the bank and take out an enormous amount of cash. Because I, I had my head, my head was like, oh, it's like 2008 again. It's a financial crisis. I need cash because, the, the, you know, this thing's going to happen to the banks. Well, you know, that cash was sitting in my safe for, for like 18 months before I could spend it all because for a long time, the thing about COVID was no one was accepting cash anymore. So, uh, you know, that that's a kind of trivial example, but it, but it goes to show how thinking that every crisis is going to be different and therefore there's a certain set of assets you should run to, whether it be, you know, crypto, gold, probably, you know, Swiss francs, whatever, or Japanese yen, you know, is, is um, or, or actually government bond, you know, US government bonds, oh, well, they always do well in the crisis. Well, actually not always. I think is is a, a dangerous thing to do and it, it's, it's dangerous to assume that everything will always be the same and you can always label certain assets as, oh yeah, this is definitely a crisis asset. This is definitely an inflation hedge. So based on the arguments that, both of you are making that there isn't enough data to label Bitcoin or crypto assets as a as anything as a crisis coin or as an inflation hedge. Then we simply actually can't label Bitcoin anything. We don't know what it is yet. We don't know if it's going to be a risk asset. We don't know if it's going to be a store of value. We don't know if it's going to be an inflation hedge. We don't know if it's going to be a crisis coin. Which is great, actually, because that, that, that's what suits a, a purely systematic method of trading like, like Momentum that, that, that doesn't know or care about any of these things, right? But, but it, you know, if a crisis happens and, and crypto starts moving in a particular way um, and it turns out that crypto is behaving differently from previous crises, well, the strategy will just adapt to that and take on a position that's appropriate to what's happening in the market at the time. So to kind of like build on what Rob just said, like, for example, I personally do not believe that... So. Exactly, as you said, we don't know what it's going to be. Uh, I feel like if I had to make a bet, I would make a pretty high conviction bet that Bitcoin is not going to be a store of value. Uh, it has some severe limitations that should prevent it from um, that particular use case. Having said that, as Rob was saying, like, you know, obviously, I mean, actually, we stand to benefit. If uh, crypto did prove to be a store of value and if it did replace gold, I mean, obviously, that would be great because that presumably would happen uh, in a nice bull market at some point, you know, that that would actually see a rise in price to, let's say, 
um, $1 million per Bitcoin or something like that. So having said that, I do not believe that it will be because I think that it simply does not have the building blocks of what makes a good store of value today. So if you think about gold, I mean, gold has some link to reality, right? Like it costs money to mine gold. It, it takes capital and labor to mine gold. So it has that, you know, connection to physical reality. You know, somebody has to buy the necessary equipment, somebody has to do the work, etc. Whereas with Bitcoin, you know, you simply do not have that kind of link. So, or, but, you know, perhaps- I'll sorry, sorry to interrupt sure. you, Rourke, but but you sure. do have that link. You do have people setting up mining farms. You do have people who have to be in there. Ah, you do yes. have to. So, you do have. A, yeah. So it goes back to the production cost that we're talking about. It's not. It's not coming out of complete thin air. There is some. There is some expenditure, and there is some human resource and capital resource being allocated to mine Bitcoin. This is a. This is a great pushback that I always get. But here, here's how I tr t typically try to kind of convey how I'm thinking about this. If Bitcoin is one dollar today. How many bitcoins per 10 minutes that there will be mined? You know, let's call it 12.5 bitcoins, right? Maybe there is another halving after that. Uh, I, I always forget if it's 12.5 or 6.25. So, it's, it's 6 so let's call. Sorry. 6.25, yeah. 6.25. So right now it's 6.25 bitcoins per 10 minutes, right? And that's baked in by the network, right? So what happens if if bitcoin drops to one dollars? Well, people just you know disassemble their mining rigs, right? Like there's a reduction in how much mining there is going on to secure the network. Okay, let's try this. Like, how about if Bitcoin is $1 million? Again, still 6.25 per 10 minutes, right? Well, that is not the case with gold. So if gold does drop in price by 99%, you know, mining would virtually, the, the supply would change. The, the actual supply will change. So here, so here's another way to put it. In gold mining, sooner or later, you would expect prices to converge around the mining cost. In crypto, it's the other way around. In crypto, it is the mining cost that converges around the price eventually. And no matter how much money, you can boil the oceans of the earth if you want with energy. You can spend all the money that you want to throw all the you can you know use the sun's energy to mine bitcoins it doesn't matter there can only be 21 million and that is a strength in some ways but that also makes it a weakness in the sense of having any kind of physical anchor to reality and that is the problem i think can i make you, you can have other stuff yeah can, sorry one one point go before on, go on. just yeah one last point or another store of value okay let's ignore gold let's call it you know dollar or you know uh, some other fiat currency that tends to be stable-ish. In that scenario, you've got the central banks that act as the stabilization mechanism, right? There's somebody literally out there trying to manipulate the money supply, which is not trivial, by the way. There's a lot that's misunderstood about QE, but that's a separate discussion. Uh, so, you know, QE is not necessarily impacting the money supply as much as people think it does. The risk appetite, lending, etc. is more important. But And by the way, it's easy to recognize that some of the uh, philosophies or ideologies around crypto actually makes it very difficult for crypto to adopt um, things that can make it a good stablecoin. Like, for example, central banking is a very hard sell in crypto, right? Like that would defeat the whole purpose. And you know what? That's fine. You know, crypto can become, become an excellent counterparty uh, diversifier, uh, as we discussed, from banks. But that can also make it a poor store of value. 
unless there is some other kind of mechanism that gets invented where, you know, for, for example, perhaps actually you can, instead of saying, you know, six Bitcoins per 10 minutes, maybe you can say six Bitcoins per a certain amount of energy, right? So perhaps you can anchor it to energy price, but that also has certain kind of issues. Anyways, you know, I don't want to divert too much, but yeah, sorry. Rob, I think you were going to say something. No, I just thought it'd be useful to have a perspective from other asset classes. Um, so, um, you know, for example, if I think about crude oil, you know, you, you might say, oh, well, you know, crude oil is clearly anchored to the cost of production. But you know what? In March 2020, crude oil futures went minus $40. OK, so the impossible happened. And similarly, if I go back a bit further to the early days of zero interest rate policy, um, I remember sitting around with, with my team and we were all going, well, you know, there's no way, of course, that interest rates can go below zero. Um, so we know that, that these futures that we hold, these interest rate futures, can't go above 100 because that would imply the interest rate would go below zero. Well, we were proven wrong very quickly and, and negative interest rates were very common in Europe for many years after that. Um, so I just I just think a lesson from other asset classes that maybe crypto people can can learn is that getting too focused on 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 things like production cost and kind of store of value can be potentially dangerous because you know what the price can do what the price can do, regardless of, of your opinion, and it'll prove you wrong very quickly. I agree, and I and I think I think we've we've spoken a lot about uh, fundamentals today, which is where I want to kind of shift things back into your realm. And my question would be, what are the important momentum investment strategies across the different asset classes, and what can we see being ported between these sort of two worlds? I mean, I guess I should let. Rob, perhaps <laughs> take that question. Yeah, well, I'll just talk very generally and, and maybe, Barrett, you can explain why you, you think that the way you're doing momentum in, in crypto makes more sense for crypto, I think. So we do it like that? Sure. Yeah, so, um, so I mean, one, one thing I, I kind of say to people, and, and I know that Barrett's going to disagree with me here, actually, again, is that you shouldn't get too hung up on exactly how you measure momentum. So basically, you're looking for something that's going to tell you whether the price has recently been going up or down. Okay, so, you know, really the most simple thing you can do is probably just look at a percentage change and say over the last N days or weeks or months, has the price gone up or gone down? And then that, that's your momentum signal. And you can you can do more complicated things involving moving averages. You can do exponentially weighted moving averages. You can do all kinds of price normalization. But generally speaking, these things are pretty highly correlated and they produce pretty much the same outcome. Um, so I, I actually use a number of different indicators. Um, because I'm I'm fully automated, so there's there's no work in me doing that. It's just just an extra piece of code that's running, and that gives me a little bit of diversification benefit. Um, so you know, and a way of thinking about it is that that maybe this indicator doesn't work so well this year, but there's another indicator that happens to be working pretty well, even though on, on like a 50 year back test, their correlation is like 0.95. You know, so the the kind of theoretical value of having one over the other is is pretty small. Um, it's more a hedge a hedge for me that something will just not work at a particular time. So, so my, my, I'm personally pretty agnostic about, and I wouldn't say that there's anything special about any given asset class, whether that be crypto, bonds, equities, that means you should use a particular form of momentum on it. But I know Barack disagrees, uh, so let, let him uh, disagree away now. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I actually wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but perhaps it's it's worth touching upon the cross-sectional versus the time series momentum here, perhaps. So uh, I guess there are two major flavors of momentum in traditional asset classes. Like you can do it cross-sectionally. So you can go long a bunch of equities that are going up and short a bunch of stocks that are going down. So that would be like the cross-sectional implementation. And now you've got the time series implementation where this is the one that's called trend following, where uh, you basically go along the S&P 500 when it's going up and short it when it's going down. So that's the kind of 
rough way to think about it. And uh, we actually, I mean, the, the right off the bat, when obviously after I discovered Rob's framework that he uh, made public in his book, we went ahead and implemented the time series momentum. So that was the first thing that we implemented right out the gate. And then we looked into cross-sectional momentum. The only problem there is that because crypto is so correlated as an asset class internally, it is effectively when you do cross-sectional momentum, it looks a lot like time series momentum. So it's almost like a you know, long beta, short beta. You know, the altcoins do better than Bitcoin and vice versa in a bull market and vice versa in a bear market. So we did not find that it brought that much diversification benefit. Uh, especially considering the additional complexity. So we decided to not implement it that way. But, you know, those are the kind of two ways, two broad ways that you can kind of think about momentum strategies. So are, are those the, the two main sort of statistical techniques that you sort of deploy to trade crypto, the cross-section on time series momentum? Uh, no, we actually just use time series momentum. Sorry, just to generally say, again, looking across different asset classes, um, the, the cross-sectional stuff, um, it is a bit pointless using it when you've got a group of highly correlated assets. You really need things that are moving idiosyncratically so you can actually get those sort of long-short bets working. Um, but even then, as a general rule, um, I would say roughly kind of 80% of the um, value of momentum's coming from those kind of big movements across across the asset class as a whole, rather than idiosyncratic movements within within the asset class. So if you were to just implement one of these things, it, time series momentum is the way to go, not just in crypto, but everywhere. So my question then would be, in terms of identifying an asset that might have momentum, let's just take, for example, one of the more recent things that happened was with dogecoin for example and i'm i'm guessing at this point you guys don't care what you're trading as long as the price is moving right that, so, that's correct yeah brilliant so tell me do you guys chase something like that or do you sort of let the momentum die and then reassess later yeah i mean i suppose this is uh, potentially a topic adjacent to this catching the outliers discussion rob so when you're trading something like something as correlated as crypto, vast majority of the value is concentrated on just capturing the big move in crypto index. So what you can do is you can trade, you know, 100 coins, or you can trade 10 coins. What you find is that when you're trading 10 coins, you capture vast majority of the value that you do when you're trading 100 coins, just because they're so correlated. Now, in theory, if you increase your trading universe, to include Dogecoin or, you know, a, even a further kind of coin at, at the long tail of, of crypto assets, you increase your propensity to capture a 100x return. So that is that is true. But what ends up happening is that you have less of your risk capital devoted to that coin, right? Like, because if you're, if you're trading 100 coins instead of 10 coins, okay, great. Now you captured a 100x return, but you now have only 1% of your risk capital instead of 10% of your risk capital in that coin. So it does not move the needle as much as if you were just trading 10 coins. Now, perhaps there is a way uh, to both retain that beautiful property of capturing the outliers and making sure that you do have a large exposure to that next 100x coin. So it, it is an interesting trade-off problem that, at least as far as I'm aware, a, a great solution does not exist. The, the other issue is, is um, that... You can't trade everything necessarily because um, liquidity, liquidity and costs come into play. And th this, again, is a, a, you know, a lesson from sort of traditional finance in that 
there's probably 200 and 250 futures markets out there I could trade, but actually maybe 70 of them aren't actually liquid enough uh, or too or too expensive to trade. And um, one you know one of the things about crypto is that the the liquidity, particularly in the you know the less um, the less large coins kind of moves in waves and sometimes you know there's a lot of liquidity in them other times there isn't um and of course sod's law says that that when you want to get out of a position is when the liquidity will dry up right and you're, you're left holding the bag um and again if i go back to 2008 you know we were trading um obscure uh, credit default swaps and um we thought the liquidity was good and and um we were comfortable trading them but then everyone stopped trading cds and and uh you know, if we hadn't closed those positions early, we would have we'd have been stuck with getting out with them at an absolutely terrible cost. Uh, and that's taught me really that the lesson of always focusing on on the liquidity and the cost numbers. And, and if anything doesn't kind of meet my minimum standard, just throwing it out of the portfolio. And I, I think this is a particularly useful lesson in crypto where there's, there's clearly a huge variation both over time, but also between coins in terms of what the liquidity and cost profiles are. So I've got a bit of a question from our producer who's in the background here. Thank you, Kate. So Kate's wondering, and I think this is actually quite an interesting question. Do you guys sort of have a budget in trying to set out certain bets on outliers potentially? Do you, do you, how do you construct that as part of your portfolio? Uh, we don't. The, the short answer is we don't. So, the, the, so basically we uh, what we try to do is we want to get as much uh, liquid coins in our universe with as much upside potential and as much uh, covering as many different broad themes as possible. You know, this could be like decentralized finance. This could be gaming, etc. Uh, now, uh, you know, this would be the kind of roughly the equivalent of having trading different industries within a you know within an equity trading universe but of course sadly in crypto this barely adds any kind of major diversification benefit so no we do not do any kind of outlier uh chasing investing in that sense uh, because as i said in a trend following framework uh that is not trivial to actually implement without you without it costing you a sharp ratio point or expected return point to you somewhere. But I think that is perhaps better done in a kind of almost like VC style early stage investing into uh, coins kind of setup. But that's just not the thing that we do. And I think that that is a perfectly valid strategy as well. Uh, yeah. So I think the, the the question you need to ask yourself is, is owning a bunch of crypto coins, is it more like holding a kind of classical economics idea? You've got a bunch of assets that have got some linear correlations and aren't doing crazy things. Um, and in that case, what tends to happen is you see diversification benefits as you add assets, but that kind of peaks at a certain point and then and there's, there's no point going further than that. Um, or is crypto more like buying a bunch of lottery tickets? In which case, one, one of those tickets could potentially pay for all the other tickets 10 times over, which again is a more like a, a VC type profile. Um, and the answer is, of course, it's somewhere in between those two. So, you know, it's quite it'll be quite unlikely that that a, a well-established liquid coin that, that would meet, um, you know, the sort of trading thresholds I've been talking about would go up by 100 times. Yes, that could happen to some piece of rubbish, tiny, tiny, tiny thing. That's quite possible. And even a thousand or 10,000 times, I guess, is possible. Um, but it's but it's unlikely that, that, you know, one of the big ones would go up by 100 times in the sort of holding period we're talking about, of you know, a month, two months. The other thing is, of course, because the the kind of, as Barack said, because the kind of linear correlations between these things are so high, the kind of linear benefits of adding assets is is limited compared to futures where you can access lots of different asset classes, not just crypto. 
Um, and, and so one of the kind of research problems that, that, that we've, we've been sort of thinking about jointly and frankly haven't got very far yet with, uh, in, in, in as much as crypto is special, I think it is special in having this property of having these, these outliers, which makes it a bit more like owning a basket of lottery tickets. Um, and in terms of actually adapting the a system that works on more well-behaved assets like futures to capture those without, as Burek says, having a kind of big opportunity cost of, you know, allocating capital to things that don't really do anything. Um, you know, we're still at the early stages of that and it may be an un- insoluble problem, frankly. I think I think the number for the, the, be- the, the peak benefits of diversification was... 11 equities i think if i was correct and right so something then, something very small yeah no this is this is interesting so it actually depends on what the correlation of your assets is so it's quite right. it's quite simple to work that out so the thing is about if you go just buying us equities which have got an average correlation of a maybe 0.7 then yeah after 11 equities you find that that your diversification it doesn't peak it carries on going up but it carries on going very slowly it asymptotes towards mm. a particular level um now in futures trend following futures for example where i trade um, even at 200 assets, I'm still seeing an increase in, in diversification benefit. Right. Uh, and actually some funds trade, you know, they go into uh, OTC, things like CDS and, and interest rate swaps and, and in single name equities. So they're looking at hundreds or even thousands of assets and they're still seeing an improvement in diversification. Um, crypto, the average correlation, um, Burak, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's like 0.9, I think, between the yeah. liquid coins we're trading. Now, of course, there's a caveat that as I said, correlation is a linear measure and therefore a poor measure when your assets have outliers in them. Um, but e- even saying that, that means that, um, you know, in terms of optimal, you know, getting seeing diversification tail off, well, frankly, it's probably about three or four coins. After three or four coins, on a linear measure basis, you're not really seeing an improvement in diversification. Um, so, you know, I actually only trade two coins because they're the only two coins I can trade on, on CME. Um, and I probably am getting you know, 80 to 90% of the benefit of, of Burak's larger portfolio um, of perhaps a dozen coins and maybe slightly more. And he's probably getting 90, 99% of the, the benefit that someone would have from holding pretty much everything. So so for some of our listeners, how would people go about creating a simple and effective momentum investing plan for Bitcoin and Ethereum? Where's their starting point? Well, I think they should just go to Rob's blog, basically. That's certainly how we got started. <laughs> and, and to make it more interesting, I mean, Rob has several alternatives uh, in a menu, depending on how sophisticated you want to get. I, I think you call it Staunch Systems Trader. Was that the name, Rob, the, the earliest one? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so um, to, to give people a kind of five, as, as a, I'll describe the, the simplest system I think you can trade systematically with as, as quickly as possible. So, First thing you need to do is decide what you're going to trade. Um, I'm, um, I think I generally say to everybody, regardless of what they're trading, start off trading one instrument at a time and understand what you're doing first before you go into the diversification benefits. And as we said with crypto, that, that's probably going to get you quite a lot of benefit if you're just trading Bitcoin and just trading Ethereum and nothing else to begin with. Pick one simple way of, of getting into your, your systems. Um, so I'd advocate something like a, a simple breakout model. Um, and the, the advantage of this is you don't need any software or spreadsheets or anything for it. All you need is a chart and a ruler. And literally what you do is say, well, I'm going to look for the trend over the last three months. You shorten your chart to three months. You look at the range of the price and you see whether the current price is in the top half or the bottom half of that range. Okay, simple. Uh, if it's the top half, you're, you go long. If it's the bottom half, you go short. Um, you then need to decide how you size your positions. Um, and th- unfortunately, 
it would take me about an hour to explain that um but 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 yeah the, i've got blog posts there uh, that describe it and, and basically it's all down to risk tolerance and things like that and probably with crypto because it's so volatile as a rule of thumb you're probably going to be wanting to put maybe a quarter of your account size into a particular position so you know if you've got a ten thousand dollar account i'd suggest you probably want to be looking at about a two and a half thousand dollar size position for any given trade and then then the the next thing you need to know is when you close your position right so when you get out of the position um, and the idea behind that is is to use a, a simple um, trailing stop loss and um, if any of your listeners are familiar with the ATR which is a measure of price ranges um, you could use something like um, maybe six or seven times the ATR as your stop loss um, so let's say on Bitcoin, assume the ATR is like, I don't know, 50 bucks. Seven times that would be uh, three and a half thousand. Sorry, 350. <laughs> it's probably more than that. But 50 sounds small. But anyway, but then you'd get out of your position if if the, the price had retraced by more than $350 from the either your entry price or a subsequent high watermark, basically. Um, so that that there you go. That That's a simple system that will work very well and will capture momentum and will do the risk management and position sizing for you very easily. Um, and then and then uh, I would then you look to extend that to other instruments because that's the best source of diversification uh, and then potentially look at more complex methods of, of entering into positions, but always keeping the core ideas of simplicity, you know, kind of basic position risk management in, in mind. Uh, and just to say the other advantage of that system will be that the, in terms of the trading frequency, it won't be trading like you know 100 times a day and bleeding your account dry of trading costs it'll be trading once every few weeks and therefore be a sensible frequency for the kind of costs faced by by retail traders uh, and the leverage won't be excessive so you've got haven't got much chance of being blown up either one one question because we've got we've got you rob that are trading on the cme cash settled futures barack you've got actual crypto held with copper custody and i'm guessing you're using clear loop so yeah, we do that, but actually, majority of our trading is actually on CME futures. So over so you, yeah, right. So why do you even hold crypto? So that's my question. I mean, if you can, if you can, if you're only trading price, why are you holding crypto? Why are you taking on that infrastructure demand? Yes, fantastic question and very reasonable one. So this is something that I, we before even we started we debated. Uh, internally quite a bit. So you can actually imagine a version of our strategy that's only run on CME futures very easily, right? So you would uh, just stick to CME futures, whatever is traded there. Now, at the time, and this is still valid, um, one, uh, well, right off the bat, one answer is we want to trade more things, not just Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, so obviously, you know, as you trade more things, it it's doesn't improve your diversification as much as the first you know instrument that you add to the mix but you know still there is some incremental benefit so that's one reason another reason is we did want to have access to the crypto infrastructure because at the time cme futures were not uh, cme options rather were not actually live and we did not want to short anything that we cannot trade options on so we did need to have access to options exchanges such as deribit and pleasure x back at the time and this is something that i'm perhaps i'm even more paranoid than rob is uh but of course crypto features are just a tiny component of you know rob's trading system but you know obviously that's all we trade so if you're shorting something like bitcoin that is an incredibly dangerous exercise uh, if you do not have some kind of tail protection in the form of options. 
so what we would do is, you know, and of course, there, by the way, shorting CME futures and buying options, call options on Deribit is not a perfect setup either, uh, because, you know, in an extreme scenario where Bitcoin goes up 5x overnight uh, and, you know, you owe a whole bunch of money to CME because you got margin called, is Deribit actually going to be a, in a situation to actually pay? Because that's a pretty extreme market event. So there are all these like counterparty considerations that you have to think about. And there are ways around that. So, for example, instead of call options, maybe you can use in the money put options, etc. But anyways, long story short, uh, A, we wanted the diversification. B, uh, having access to crypto infrastructure at a more limited capacity uh, than perhaps some other investment operations still allows you to do interesting things that can improve your expected sharp ratio. So that's why we chose to go that route. Beautiful. Rob, do you have anything to, to, to say on that? Um, well, yeah, I mean, this is this is another one of those kind of re research um, questions um, that, that I'm kind of interested in with, with working with crypto is, is that actually um, you, you kind of have a trade-off between um, safety and return, right? So the safest thing to do is just to trade on CME, which is what I do, because, you you know, that's backed by a massive clearinghouse, it's cash settled, you've got no custody issues, no one's going to hack your account, run off with your your coins or any of that none of that stuff you're exposed to the only thing you're exposed to well unless they cancel your trades right i mean that's that's become a precedent as well um well that's i believe i mean that only happens that obviously that happened on the lme um with a nickel sure and, uh it's it's it, but it has happened it has happened on the cme it's pretty rare it's normally um i think the last major time it happened was the, the flash crash in 2010 when you know trades that were quote unquote believed to be erroneous were cancelled but it's pretty. I'd say that there's, generally speaking, the kind of risk of trade cancellations or other risks like that is much higher with with crypto exchanges than with the CME. I'm pretty sure that, that we're not going to see the head of the CME in a US jail anytime soon, for example, whereas, of course, you know, there's famously uh, crypto um, exchange CEO currently in a US jail. Let's just not go into that. But but um, so you, the way I see it, you've got a choice to continue between trading two things on a nearly 100% safe platform. Not, you know, nothing's completely safe. I'm not going to say that. It's nothing risk-free. On the other hand, you can trade um, on some on, on, a, on a crypto exchange. You can trade lots of other things, but with more risk, okay? And, um, you know, we can debate about what the relative risk levels are, but but I, I think there is some there is, a, there is a higher risk. There's a higher counterparty risk with the crypto exchange. Um, and there's, there's a higher risk, you know, risk of other things happening. Um, now, the question is, what benefits do you get in terms of extra diversification returning going from just two assets to 10, 12, 15, 20, 100 assets? And as we've already discussed, with using a linear measure, those, those benefits are quite small. So, you know, for me personally, the trade-off is like, well, okay, I'm happy to get 80% of the benefits of holding a full suite of crypto assets by holding just two with minimal risk because I'm trading on the CME. Um, but that equation will be different for other people. Um, but that kind of risk return trade off isn't something that's been kind of looked at much in in sort of financial academic literature. So it's a very it's actually a very interesting research problem because you what you're effectively having to do is if basically price the risk of being exposed to the crypto on the exchange. So um, if you could buy a CDS um, on the exchange um, and perfectly hedge yourself against the risk, then then um, you know if you could buy an insurance policy that covered you against all possible crypto risks. You can't do that, but theoretically, what would the price of that policy be? And is it worth paying or are you better off taking that risk by trading lots of other coins? So it's a, I mean, me, you know, for me personally, um, you know, I, I don't I don't trade on crypto exchanges and don't hold crypto and frankly, probably never will. So for me, it's a very clear, clear uh, answer. But 
Um, obviously, Burke's running a crypto hedge fund, so he's got to move to a degree in the other direction. And the question is, where's that optimal point? Well, Barack, I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing the fact that you're custodying with copper, you have access to Clearloop, which removes that counterparty risk or mitigates it as, uh, yeah. to, to a very, very minimal level. You're not in that position that Robert's actually describing here. Yeah, but I think this is, I actually wanted to add something because this is a fascinating topic. So yeah, we, are, we, we do not have to leave money on the exchanges. So we would, you know, hold any exposure with our custodian. And of course, like, like there, then there is the question of like, is the underlying blockchain secure? You know, how secure is that? You know, because failures can happen, right? Like there's no 100% safe thing in the world in any kind of pocket of finance. But, you know, they're, they all exist on a continuum. But I think one of the, and this is something that I had written about in the, in a past investor ladder, I think. So there are these strategies in crypto that can make, let's say, 20%, let's call it 10% to 30% annualized returns, right? Like these would be things like arbitrage or I guess some people call it like cash versus carry trade and things like that, that do require you to underwrite certain crypto counterpart risks. Like if you're arbitraging spot coins, you know, Presumably, you need to leave some money on the exchanges, possibly 100% of your capital on the exchanges. But of course, they could be diversified. So maybe you can trade on 20 different exchanges and leave 5% on each, etc. So, so the question is, well, is that 20% alpha or is that beta, right? Like, are you effectively getting compensated for the counterparty risks that you're underwriting? Or are you overcompensated for that, which I guess let's call it roughly alpha. Now, I happen to believe that 20% per year would be an overcompensation. I think that a good chunk of that could be considered alpha. And that's because I do not think that the risks that the arbitrage fund would be running would necessitate a 20% per annum return, if that makes sense. So because so if you if you believe that so and then that relies on the assumption like how correlated are counterparty defaults right like actually there's something analogous to this in, a, in the cds world like so you would have like cdx tranches like this is the 2008 crisis maker stuff so you would have like the equity tranche of a cds and then a senior tranche of a cds and depending on your correlation assumptions between the counterparties so so if you have a basket of 100 banks or if you have a basket of 100 crypto exchanges uh, if one of them defaults, what is the probability that other ones are defaulting as well? Now, I happen to believe that the correlation is reasonably low. And that means that, you know, if you hold money in 20 different exchanges, if FTX defaulted, you lost 5%. That's great. You still keep 95%. And that actually allows you to stay in the game to make up for your losses and make that 20% per year, right? And that would be the kind of overcompensation. You're getting overcompensated for the risks that you're underwriting. So that's one way to think about it. Or if these exchange defaults are very correlated and you're making 20% per year, but suddenly in a bad year, you might lose everything. Well, that's a different question then, right? Like that looks, that starts to look a lot more like beta. That starts to look a lot more like, you know, lending money to, I don't know, like a triple C rated bond. I don't know, let's call it Venezuela or something like that. So it's, it's, this, it's this very interesting question of, you know, what is the counterpart risk that I'm underwriting? How correlated is that risk? And, you know, assumptions around that can make these strategies look more alpha-like or beta-like. One good aspect of what we do in momentum trading is that we do not have to underwrite these risks, right? Like, because we can do what we do with just CME futures if we wanted to. So that's really helpful. But I still found this question very 
interesting because obviously anybody that's looking to allocate to crypto will probably want to allocate to a range of styles, right? Like if you're doing it like very at the institutional mindset, let's call it, you you might want to have some buy and hold exposure. You might want to have some arbitrage exposure, etc. So at that point, it becomes very interesting to think about, well, okay, are we getting paid for risks that we underwrite or are we outsmarting others? Yeah, and this this actually is, sorry, just to say, this is actually as kind of implying this is a, this is a key thing about crypto. Like, so in my when I'm trading futures, I never think about counterparty risk at all. Um, you know, I trade on like six or seven different exchanges, and I don't even give a, a a tiny thought to counterparty risk. And my main my main risk is I'm worried about my exposure to my broker, and you know, I mitigate that by having multiple brokers. But but in crypto, it's 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 not it's genuinely a problem. But it's also a it makes it an interesting asset class from that perspective because you've you've got to think about this additional dimension that you don't have to worry about with futures. I'm a little bit confused. You guys are the experts here, but can you sort of clarify something for me? If we've got to account for counterparty risks on spot markets specifically, let's say, then shouldn't the shouldn't the futures be trading at a premium always? Well, no. So futures will sorry, right? But futures will only go out of line if you can't do a kind of. An arbitrage trade, right? So the 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 arbitrage trade will will um, if if there's reasons why you can't do the arbitrage trade, then they will move out of line. So if you go back a few years, the the cash the the futures were actually quite a long way out with the spot, and this was actually happening. Um, and a bunch of people said, "Well, this this is great. We just need to do this this spot versus futures trade, and we'll push the the prices back into line." So um, you know what you, what you say is correct, and was indeed very correct in the early days of, of you know these things trading on the CME, because a lot of institutions were like, "Well, brilliant. We can now trade crypto without worrying about all of this kind of operational compliance rubbish. We have to." worry about we can get exposure via the futures this is fantastic and so you know yeah you're actually right the price of the futures got bid up way above the spot um but then a whole bunch of other people said well, well you know we're, we're very happy to do to do the the arbitrage trade and just make free money and i think at one percent barack maybe correct me but i think you could get something like 35 percent a year annualized on this trade and but another way of thinking about this is well what were those people being paid for well, they were being paid for a, for two things. One is a kind of you know potential price differential between two exchanges, but the other thing they're being paid for is the difference between having counterparty risk versus CME versus having counterparty risk and other and and you know and and just general risk around holding cash um, crypto assets um, on on a, on a crypto exchange. They 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 were basically um, effectively the market was saying, well, the price of that difference in counterparty risk is currently 35% a year, okay? But since then, you know, a lot a lot more institutional ways of, of holding crypto have come into play, and you guys will know far more about this than I do, of course. Uh, and you've got the the ETFs and, and, and so on, although the ETFs are based around the futures, aren't they? But anyway, that the, you know, the number of institution people are out there who prepare to pay this huge premium to be exposed to the future and not to the spot has, has gone down dramatically. And therefore, the arbitrage profits that could be made have also have also disappeared. That that's kind of my my understanding of, of what's happened. But but um, you know, if we ever get into a situation again where yeah, the only way that that people that institutions can be exposed to Bitcoin is via futures, because maybe the SEC closed down all the other avenues. You know, I mean, it's not it seems unlikely, but it could happen, right? Then I would expect to see that that futures premium bid up again because you know that that's the would be a typical price for for what people are willing to pay to avoid. The, avoid the counterparty risk. Burak, I don't know if you've got any colour on that. 
Yeah, not really. I mean, this is something that occasionally confuses me. And then suddenly, occasionally, I have this overarching understanding of it that lasts for five seconds, but then I'm confused again. So I will point out this one thing. I think this was during the FTX situation. And it there was this very curious situation where the CME futures actually traded below spot. Hmm. So... And if you think about it, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because you're scared about, let's imagine you're trying to hedge yourself against a crash in the broader crypto ecosystem. Now, which counterparty is out there that is the most likely to pay you if you actually make money on your trade? So I, I personally would prefer a short on CME to a short on a, let's say, offshore unregulated crypto exchange because they may not be around if the trade does go in your direction, right? Right. So then perhaps the kind of spot business future basis is a reading on market sentiment, perhaps, right? But again, maybe not necessarily because there are people arbitraging these things out there, etc. So it is not a very trivial thing to kind of go and say, okay, future should always trade at... I always forget Contango. I'm pretty sure it's Contango. Future always it's should, Contango, yeah. yeah. Future always should trade uh, trade at a premium to spot. So it's uh, there are these like counterintuitive edge cases. So we've we've seen now a couple of consecutive weeks where Bitcoin's been going up. I think it's the last. I mean, including this week, it's about five weeks in. Are we are we in a momentum? Are we? Are you heading up in a nice direction? Where, where are you guys positioned on this? What, what do you think is happening? Yeah, I mean, we're certainly, I mean, if you're a tr- momentum trader that trades at our time horizons, then yeah, you would be very much long. Uh, I think we're pretty close to our max long position. So I think like we're running at o- over 80% over our long-term target volatility level. Uh, so that's that gets us pretty close to our maximum long. But yeah, I mean, of course, that can change very quickly if there's suddenly another crash coming up. Uh, so, you know, momentum strategies are, depending on how fast you trade them, they're quite adaptive. But yeah, it's fair to say that we are right now long. And if I, you know, if I'm estimating it correctly, I would imagine Rob is quite, I think we trade slightly faster than Rob, but, you know, I'm guessing Rob is pretty long as well. Yeah, right so I'm, I'm in Bitcoin, I'm currently at 70% of my average long position. So um, probably about a third of what Burak's at if he's at max long. Yeah. And in Ethereum, sorry, I bear in mind I've got a report with 200 things on it instead of two, so I need to find them. Uh, Ethereum, I'm at um, 4.6, so I'm, I'm, I'm about half my average, half my average long. So how do you guys know when to exit? When is it, when, I think one of the, the, the nicest thing I've ever heard about investing and trading was when, when are you going to be able to tell that the sentiment has shifted and there's going to be more enthusiastic sellers than buyers. So for the, the way of thinking about this is with these systems that we trade is that they, they're, um, so I described to you earlier a simple system where you, you decide you open a position up on the base on a breakout and then you close based on a stop loss. So that's one answer is, mm-hmm. is just when your stop loss is triggered. So you don't actually form an opinion about whether the trend's exhausted or not. You get out of the trend when, when it starts to lose more than a certain amount of money, basically. But the other way of doing it, and this is the way we actually do it, is, is effectively to look, just look at the, 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 the strength of the trend. And the strength of the trend in, in one direction is, is telling you, um, you know, kind of where you are in the trend. So a way of thinking about this would be if you go back, I don't know when, when Bitcoin kind of turned around in terms of going up again. 
because I, I don't follow any of the markets I trade at all, to be honest. So I, I don't know what any of them are doing. Um, but let's assume it was three months ago. So three months ago, you would have probably been short. But then as the market turned against you, these positions would be evaluating the strength of the trend and saying, well, the trend's getting weaker and weaker because, because you know, and at some point you'll get to the point where, so well, actually there is no trend, we're flat. And at that point, you'll, you'll close your short position. And then the next day, you're like, well, now there's a very weak positive trend. So now we open a small long position. And then as the trend strengthens, you increase the size of that long position. And as Burak said, because he trades a bit quicker than me and is a bit more reactive, he will have come across that, that line from short to long earlier than I would have done. And that's why he's further down that road of building a long position. And it sounds like he's pretty much at the maximum. Um, whereas if, if Bitcoin carries on and Ethereum carry on trending up, then I will continue building my long position. I've got a little bit of a way to go yet because I'm, I'm a bit less reactive and a bit slower. Um, but, but yeah, those, those are two basic ways of doing it. But by, for most people, I recommend starting off with a stop loss because it's just a very simple thing and you just have to look at two numbers. Has the price crossed the stop loss? Yes or no? Okay, close the position or keep the position on. Gentlemen, it's been really, really interesting having these sort of opinions and insights into, into the space. Very different to our general guests who are very focused on crypto and much more bullish than you are, Rob. And but, me as well, probably. <laughs> almost and, and certainly. you as well, almost. <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's really important for the community to listen in and, as to what's going on. And so if there's each of you had to give some advice to people out there, what are the things that the crypto industry needs to do? Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I'll go first. I, I guess that might give Rob some time to think about as well about this as well. So I think that there was actually a recent podcast with Nassim Taleb, and I think that so he actually pointed out something which rang very true to me. Uh, I think that there is almost a disdain in crypto space for traditional finance, which is not for entirely misplaced reasons, by the way. It's just that there is still a lot that can be learned from, right? Like there, you don't have to make the same mistakes. Uh, it, you know, finance is ju not just a computer science problem. There is like a social element to it. So I think, I mean, and also it goes the other way around too. I mean, like, you know, uh, you know, sometimes people can be too quick to dismiss crypto and, and that's not necessarily a very accurate take as well. Like, for example, there can be like counter, as we discussed about like the potential uh, benefits of crypto. But I think that what what I see in crypto community is almost like a reluctance to even consider some of the points being raised by people who have done this sort of thing in the past, because oh, clearly, you know, it's all central banks, they're printing money, they're, you know, the inflation is imminent. And, you know, these evil central bankers are uh, moving prices up. And there is just a lot of misguided um, opinions or narratives out there. And they're so easy. Like, in a sense, computer science is the harder problem, right? Like, th these these are a lot easier to... Like, 90% of what one might need to understand about central banking is probably like a couple of hours of work. And people just refuse to do that work. And that makes them more prone to latching on to misguided narratives. I, I think that's one thing that I would say. I think uh, people should educate themselves better about why we ended up with the system that we did in traditional finance. The other thing is people should have realistic expected sharp ratios about crypto. <laughs> and I think perhaps like this is one area, I think perhaps this would be a great closing out thing. Like Robert can give more color around that. Like what are these sorts of 
expected sharp ratios, expected returns divided by volatility that are available to other asset classes, almost as a baseline of what returns might be reasonable to expect from crypto. That is not to say that it will be exact, but it's just like a kind of almost like a back of the envelope starting point, because I think there's a lot of unrealistic return expectations around crypto. Uh, so I think it would be good for people to kind of uh, educate themselves around that too. Yeah, so I, I just give general advice to people trading, which is to avoid three key errors. So one is one is trading too often, one is using too much leverage, and the third is being too optimistic, like Burke says. And these kind of tie into each other, because obviously if you are very optimistic and you do think you're the greatest trader in the world, well, you can use all the leverage you want because you're never going to be wrong. And you can pay any amount of trading costs because you're, you're definitely going to cover those costs, so it's no problem at all. Uh, and that that's just not the case. Not not everyone is going to be the best trader in the world, just just that's just maths, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with learning from traditional finance. I mean, I think it was Matt Lee on Bloomberg Newsletter who says it does seem that crypto is learning the lessons of traditional finance at high speed and making the same mistakes. And so, um, you know, things, things like bank runs, things like hacking, you know, the importance of compliance, the importance of security, um, you know, all of the all of these things, um, you know, over the last well, thousand years, I guess you could say, traditional finance has, has learned all these lessons. And the, I see the same mistakes being made, made in crypto kind of now. So, um, you know, I think it's useful to know for anyone generally in trading and finance, um, it's useful to know history, right? To, to know about the history of things that have happened in the past. And that's true for, for anybody. I mean, you know, no matter what you're trading, it seems scary to me to think that 2008, which to me is, seems very fresh in my memory, to to sort of the average 20 year old they'll, they'll be like well you know i was in primary school i was in kindergartens what what are you talking about um so knowing about this this stuff i think is important um but yeah i'm afraid that i have to say this but the honest answer to the question you know what should the crypto industry do in my honest opinion is disappear but but there we go I'll leave that there. <laughs> i don't i don't you can you can edit that out if you like but i'd prefer you if you didn't anyway I'm going to leave that uh, that one to our producer to decide on. And <laughs> totally think, fine by me, we, by the way. We'll let Kate decide. We've got, we've got the most pessimistic and optimistic podcast on crypto ever recorded here. Fantastic. I mean, I mean, but Robert, I take a. Li- I don't take offense. I'm not going to take offense with anything. But I, t- I, you know, why are you trading it if it's if it's if you don't like it so much? I mean, you're you're benefiting from it, aren't you? Um. I, I believe that, for example, that, that um, the production of oil and so on is a big problem, but I still trade oil futures. Um, and I don't believe that me, me trading oil futures, I don't believe that me trading oil futures, which to me is just a number, is, is encouraging, you know, more oil to be pumped or anything like that. Apart from anything else, I hope sometimes I'll be long, sometimes I'll be short, right? The same is true, is true of Bitcoin. Um, you know, if, if Bitcoin was disappear tomorrow if, if the future was delisted or something it would have zero impact on my life it's one out of 200 positions any benefit i'm gaining is extremely marginal extremely small um it's just something i trade and um one th- one thing i another thing perhaps that crypto people can learn more generally i think um a lesson that good traders know is that you shouldn't get emotional and tied up in in, in your position right you shouldn't be you know, you shouldn't base your position on 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 kind of grand high opinions and theories because you love the asset and you see a great future for it. You have to be able to separate out what your personal opinions are from what what the correct position to hold is. So I'm happy to be long Bitcoin, even though I'm a massive Bitcoin skeptic. Um, um, but I'm equally happy to be short 
I'd hope that if I was a, a massive lover of Bitcoin, I'd equally be happy to be short Bitcoin if that's what my system was telling me the correct position was to hold. So, so yeah. You know, Robert, I'm 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 interested uh, in in the perspective here. You pulled out cash in March 2020, but you don't believe in the intrinsic value of Bitcoin and crypto rails and self-custodying of your own assets. There, there's a bit of a dichotomy there. <laughs> I, I well, <laughs> there really isn't. I, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, you you cannot spend crypto, right? Like you. I mean, I. By the way, like I actually you can. I mean, not not easily. But, no, that, but that's as a concept towards heading towards the future. That's kind of the point. We're not there yet. I agree. I was hoping we, this wouldn't turn into me telling you why I hate crypto. Um, but, but if you because I was being really for Burak's for Burak's benefit, I, I was being really very polite and sticking to stuff about trading strategies. But but um, you know what, Fadi? Every every year I do an experiment where I say, right, I'm going to pretend I'm like a normal person rather than someone who actually does have um, you know background in some background in computer science and is a you know knows a bit about markets. Um, and I'm going to try and open a, a you know get get myself a crypto wallet and, and spend some money on it. Uh, and every year I fail. Every year it's too hard. It's too complicated. And it takes far too much time. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're now, um, and I've, I'll be honest with you, you know, I published a blog post in 2013 saying, um, I think this Bitcoin thing is stupid. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, in retrospect, I should have just, just remortgaged my house and put everything into Bitcoin. And I'd, I'd now be worth a lot more. Um, but but that, that's, um, that doesn't mean to say that that not owning Bitcoin then was the wrong decision for me personally. And it doesn't change my opinions about the asset class. Um, I think, you know, a post-up rationalization of what's happened to the price isn't helpful. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, you're not, you're not going to change my mind, I'm afraid. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty firmly embedded in it. And I see no value to me personally in, in, in spending an awful lot of time understanding this, this product, because like I said, it's, it's, it's two out of 200 positions that I hold. So, um, you know, right. I, I, I probably know, Probably actually, I probably know more about Bitcoin than I know about the economics of mining. I don't know palladium, um, which I don't know right. absolutely nothing. Well, you know, but anyway. Well, on that bombshell, as Jeremy Clarkson used to say, <laughs> I think uh, I think we've had a great chat, and uh, we will definitely post links to your blog, uh, Robert, so people can sort of access the information and your research, and. Uh, Thank you so much. I hope you change your mind, Robert. Barack, I hope you you make big bang. I'm going to I'm going to try and reach out in a year and say, "Hey, look, we've excelled a little bit in spending crypto." And maybe I can help you change your mind. I'll I, it's going to be it's going to be a mission. I'm going to keep a reminder for myself. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. As always, we appreciate you tuning into Coppercasts. Follow me for regular updates on cryptocurrency macro research, digital assets, and distributed financial market infrastructure. My handle is at Fadi Abualfa. Thank you to my producer, Kate Light, for continued support. And if you would want to get in touch, email us at marketing at copper.co or find us on Twitter at CopperHQ. This podcast has been prepared for informational purposes only without regard to any individual investment objectives, financial situation, or means, and Copper is not soliciting any action based upon it. This podcast is not to be construed as a recommendation or an offer to buy or sell any security, financial product, instrument, 
or to participate in any particular trading strategy. Certain transactions, including those in digital assets, give rise to substantial risk and are not suitable for all investors. The value of digital assets may go down, and your capital and assets may be at risk.